When was the last time that you longed for mercy? The last time you had done something, offended someone, didn't follow a rule, didn't do what you should have done, and you wished that someone would show you mercy, compassion in response. Maybe you can think back to, you knew you were driving over the speed limit, you got pulled over, you've been through all that, handing the license, and you're now sitting there in the car, quietly, alone, hoping and maybe praying for some mercy when the officer comes back up. Or maybe it's that you're waiting for that meeting with the teacher or the employer because you, you blew it on an assignment, you missed it, and you're hoping for mercy. My brother is here this morning. We, were, uh, we had the benefit of being raised by Christian parents um, who love the Lord, but who had somewhat different styles in terms of parenting. Our mother was law and our dad was grace. And so, I, and I don't recommend that approach to your, your parenting necessarily, but we knew when we had done wrong, there was a better chance of getting mercy from dad and what we probably deserved from mom. Justice, mercy, and grace. It's an interesting crossroads between those, and we're going to look at that this morning, mercy and justice from God, because we know that God is holy and just, that he opposes those who break his law, that he condemns sin when sin entered the world through man's rebellion. God comes to the Garden of Eden and he confronts Adam and Eve and he passes judgment upon them. We know that the judgment on Eve, the pain and childbearing to Adam, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And then Worst of all is the banishment from that lovely garden, banishment away from the tree of life so they can no longer eat of that tree. God is abundantly clear on the matter of sin, that it brings about consequences, that it, it causes judgment. Proverbs 11.21 says in part, be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished. Likewise, in the Old Testament, in the book of Nahum, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Scripture's clear, but by the same token, we understand that that is not the whole story. That God also speaks broadly of mercy and grace. When God introduced himself, if you will, in terms of the description he gave in Exodus 34 to Moses on Mount Sinai, he said it this way, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. And that is the, the, the apparent dilemma that must be resolved, is how one has a relationship with a holy God, a God who detests sin, whose law is perfect, and who vows that the punishment for sin is death. How do we reconcile that in order to have a relationship with him when we are Sinners, when we break God's law, we do it directly, doing things that completely are defiant of what God has said, lying and lusting and cheating and stealing. We do it sometimes in a more passive sense where we, we don't do the good things that God's law calls us to do. We don't love sacrificially the way we should. We don't try to help the, the weary and broken in the way that we should. We don't worship, perhaps, in the way that we should. We break his law with our actions and our words most certainly with our thoughts. Psalm 130 verse 3 says it well, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The NIV says that if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? 
if God were to keep that long list, that long record of your sins, and, and he were to hold on to that and judge you according to that, none of us would stand. None of us could stand before him. We would be condemned. It would only take one, and yet we know that that list runs on and on. And so how is it that we deserve judgment, we deserve punishment from God, and yet there is a way that he gives mercy and satisfies his justice with grace. If you'd open to John chapter 8 this morning, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. And the passage that we're reading in John 8 is a beautiful description of, of God reconciling justice and mercy, and we see it in the life of Jesus Christ here. We see him carrying this out, how it is possible for a holy creator God to deal with sin in a way that neither compromises his holiness nor condemns the sinner for eternity. So I'm going to read this passage, John 8, 1 through 11, then we'll, we'll talk about it and, and consider it. John 8, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Before we consider this passage, I want to take a few minutes to just talk about the text of Scripture because more than likely in your translation of the Bible, there, is, there are brackets or there's a footnote that surrounds this passage in some way. The ESV says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811, that passage of John. These sorts of brackets and footnotes can cause questions for people. Uh, they can be the kinds of things that people who are trying to criticize the faith might bring to you and point out to you and, and get you to question the reliability of Scripture. We talked a little about this in John chapter 5, in the one verse in John chapter 5 where it's the healing at the pool of Bethsaida and it speaks of the angel coming and stirring up the waters and it's a verse that, that has that same sort of footnote, sort of question mark, if you will. So let me just talk about this for just a few minutes, because I think it's important to us if we're going to approach this passage to say, if it's got some, something to it here that's more to it, maybe we should understand that. The, the 27 books of the New Testament were written over a period of about 40 years. So you go from about 20 years after the time of Christ, around AD 50, and those books are then written over a period then of about 40 or so years to about AD 90 or thereabouts into the 90s at some point, that we get that from the internal evidence of the books, the things that they record, the things that are sort of contemporaneous to the writers, just sort of the descriptions that they give help us to, to pinpoint roughly those years. Two things are happening during that time, the, the writing of the New Testament. One is history. The, the, you have a generation that has been 
eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and of the birth of the church. Those who have seen him and have experienced him are writing history. They are laying out for the church what, is, what they need to know, and that's why we get the Gospels and the Acts, the story of, of Jesus and then the Acts of the Apostles, the birth of the early church. And then the second thing is instruction, because you now have a, a whole host of new believers in young churches that are just growing and learning, and they need to be taught in doctrine and practice. They need to know what it is to live out a Christ-like life and what it is to believe in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John is historically considered to be about the last of the, the 12 disciples in terms of living the longest. He was exiled on the island of Patmos and seems to be writing late in that, that first century. Gospel of John, we look at it and we can see by comparing it to Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he takes and sort of gives supplement, if you will, doesn't just take and repeats those stories, but gives other information, telling us that he was probably the later writer, somewhere around 80 or 90 is the estimate, uh, in, in terms of that year and the century. And then after that, would have written the book of Revelation, and that would have largely closed out the New Testament at that point. We don't have the original copies. We don't have the parchment John or Paul or Peter or James wrote on. What we have is what's been passed down with the copying of those originals. If those originals existed, undoubtedly they would be on display somewhere and there would be people going and paying homage to the, the parchments as opposed to the, the, the God who has given us that word. And so we don't have those. They were copied by hand over and over again. And in a museum in England, there's a little fragment of John chapter 18. It is the oldest fragment of a copy of the New Testament. It's several verses from John 18. And, and the style of writing, it was found in, in Egypt, and the style of writing of it, it, it takes it back to about the year 125, roughly 40 or so years, maybe 50 years after the time that John wrote it. That is remarkably close in terms of ancient writings, to have copies that begin to appear within 50 years of the time that the original was written is remarkable by any standards. Archaeologists have discovered about 6,000 fragments or complete manuscripts of the Greek New Testament and then thousands more of ancient translations into other languages. Again, that is a number that is really remarkable. There are hundreds of them from just the first four centuries after Christ, including complete texts of the Greek New Testament. If you go up to the Museum of the Bible in, in D.C., they have in their possession uh, portions from Romans 4 and 5 and the last half of John chapter 8 from somewhere in the third century. Again, remarkable discoveries that take copies very close back to the originals. We now, I understand how we think, we think things happen instantaneously and we write it and we transmit it and it, it gets sent all over the world. In a culture where everything was done by sight and by hand, to have copies that close in time is remarkable. And we know that by looking at other ancient documents. The writing with the nearest number of copies or fragments from the ancient Greek world is a record of the siege of the city of Troy in modern-day Turkey, and there are just over 600 copies of fragments or manuscripts of that. 600 compared with 6,000 pieces or whole records of the New Testament. And in terms of time from the original, the, the Iliad, written by Homer, that, that book about the siege, the earliest copy is about 500 years after the time the original was written, compared to closer to 50 years when it comes to the New Testament. All of that is important because what it speaks to us is the, the preservation 
of the New Testament documents is remarkable. It is inexplicable by human terms by looking at any other ancient document. And when I give you Homer's Iliad as the example, that is the next nearest sort of competitor, if you will. All the rest, it's just you're talking dozens of copies, maybe a couple of hundred, but more likely double digits. So it is remarkable that there are 6,000 pieces or complete New Testaments, and it speaks to us about the reliability of what we have. Our translators, the people who take the Greek language and put it into the English, what they have done over the centuries is compared as new manuscripts are discovered and they compare them with the ones found before to see how consistent they are. And what they keep finding is just this remarkable consistency, giving deference to the older manuscripts. The closer you can get back to the first century, the closer you are to the originals and presumably the less that's happened along the way in copying. And so they found as they've compared manuscripts what we might expect to find. Spelling errors here and there, words that are transposed, letters that are transposed, words or letters that are omitted. We do that and we have spell check. I mean, when we sit and you're trying to copy something word for word, if you didn't have spell check and it wasn't fixing it, you would have all sorts of mistakes on that. They were doing it by sight and by hand. And so there's little minor things like that that they see but over and over again, the discoveries of older manuscripts and new texts, when compared with the others, find this remarkable consistency in Scripture. That it is just one after another proving the point that the Bible is reliable. The, the last major discovery that, that really brought this home was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls about 70 years ago. Scrolls that went back, writings that went back to at least a couple of centuries before the time of Jesus Christ. And when they were, at the time they were found, the oldest Hebrew Old Testament manuscripts were from a thousand years after Christ. They didn't have stuff that was dated back this far. And so the, the critics of the Bible, knowing that the scrolls contain many, many quotations, a couple of hundred quotations of various portions or books of the Old Testament, began to scour thinking this would prove that scripture was not consistent, that what it said here is not what they found, and what they found was it being almost identical, a 99 point something percent sense of comparison between what they found in those scrolls and the manuscripts they have found before. All that to say, you should have complete confidence that when you read the word of God, when you read your Bible, you are reading what God has given us and he has preserved in a miraculous way, that he has guarded his word. As a piece of literature, there is nothing like the Bible. When you span a period of 1,500 years in terms of writing, 40 human authors all being directed and led in their writing by God, but you put together those kinds of numbers and you have a book that is consistent and reliable from Genesis to Revelation. A book that is talking about God's creation of man, the fall and sin of man, and God's redemption or salvation of man from beginning to end. And so we have much to have great confidence in. And I say that so that when you see a bracket or a footnote on a passage like John 8, 1 through 11, it doesn't cause you to pause. What it's saying here is that as they found older manuscripts, they didn't find this particular story here. Uh, they found John continuing on and picking up when what we would see as verse 12. The oldest manuscripts don't have it. And the oldest writings of the early church fathers, as they commented on John, didn't comment on this passage. However, 
This passage we are looking at this morning, and the reason I am taking time to, 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 for us to consider it this morning, is because there is nothing in the text that really should give us any doubt that this is a record of history in the life of Jesus Christ. There, there is some thought that perhaps Luke may have written this, and somehow it got inserted later. Some of the language is a little different from John's and a little more similar to Luke's. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is what is taught in this passage is entirely consistent with the life of Christ and demonstrates a historicity that we should take seriously. It is a passage that is worthy of our studying and appears very much to be authentic and biblical. And in fact, for it to have been sort of made up and inserted would have really gone against the culture of the era when a lot of these manuscripts were being copied because a lot of the copying was done by monks who were very serious, particularly in the area of sexual sin. And that is sort of at the, the centerpiece of this. And so it is, it's almost impossible to imagine, because the, the critics of this story say, uh, it almost seems like Jesus is going light here on, on, on sexual sin. It is impossible, and he's not, to, to imagine a monk sort of inventing and inserting this particular story of Jesus um, not condemning this particular woman. So I, I, I think what we find here is a story that is an account that we need to read, we need to understand. Um, let me go back again, and we'll just take the first five verses to start with. John 8, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, "'Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery.'" Now in the law, Moses commanded to stone such women, so what do you say? A couple of background things here in terms of Roman law and Jewish rules for a case like this. Roman law did not allow the Jews to execute without Roman approval. We know that from the death of Jesus Christ, that as much as the Jewish leaders wanted to crucify Jesus, they couldn't do so without going to Pilate and, and getting the approval of the governor. The Romans did not historically, particularly in this era, allow any form of execution for adultery. That was not something that they were going to be allowed to punish by virtue of death, and we know that from what is written about Roman law at that time. Second thing we know from Jewish understanding of the Mosaic law and how they applied it is that for there to be a conviction on the count of adultery, it had to be something the person, the, the people had to be caught in the act by multiple witnesses who could consistently corroborate the story. There are accounts in extra-biblical literature of cases being dismissed because they had differences, slight variations in how the witnesses told the story in terms of what they saw. They had to actually catch the couple in the act. It, it, didn't, it wasn't enough to see them come walking out of a room and say, ah, this is what must have happened. Leon Morris writes, compromising circumstances were not enough. They had to be caught in the act, and that is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees say in verse 4. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Knowing this now, that should prompt a question, and my assumption is that at least half of you in this room have already thought this question, and the other half of you might be a little slower coming to it. We might break that down by men and women. And the question is, is where is the man? How does this happen? If we've got a woman who is caught in the act of adultery and now being paraded out, and it says in the midst of them, Jesus is teaching what is presumably a large crowd at the temple, and she is being brought, where is the man? In, in fact, why were they even bringing her out to this 
public sort of stage. If they believed, if they had seen that she was guilty of adultery, they should take her to the Sanhedrin, to a Jewish court of some kind, and prosecute there and have the witnesses speak at that point. There was no reason to bring this woman before Jesus, particularly if they were trying to say that Jesus has no authority, that Jesus is not a ruler, he's not a Pharisee, he doesn't have any grounds here in terms of authority. So why do that? And the answer is in verse 6. We know what they've said to Jesus. Jesus, you know the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Verse 6 says, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. It is speculation because the text doesn't clearly say it, but it is not a stretch to assume at this point that this woman was set up as a pawn in this situation. That for multiple witnesses to catch her in the act of adultery and that for the man to somehow have vanished in all of this, that this is a, a set of circumstances that has been arranged by some bitter Pharisees at this point, specifically to catch Jesus and to bring the most vulnerable person out into the square in front of the temple to prosecute. Think back to chapter seven. Jesus is in Jerusalem. The Pharisees have sent the guard, their own temple guard, to go and arrest Jesus. And remember at the end of chapter 7 when the temple guard comes back to the Pharisees and they come back without Jesus and the Pharisees are like, where's Jesus? You were supposed to arrest him. And they go, he teaches like no one we've ever heard. He is amazing. These Pharisees are humiliated at this point. Because the guard didn't do what they were told. They, they mock the guard, we know. But also because the crowd at this point has this expectation. The crowd's heard all of this, that they're going to arrest and murder Jesus. And the crowd is wondering now, do these Pharisees have any backbone at this point? And so here the guard has come back. Jesus has not been arrested. And so it's not hard to imagine a scenario in which they set up a circumstance to trap Jesus publicly. And this woman is, is the victim in this in, in terms of the, the, the sinful act of the Pharisees. Not to dismiss her sin in this, but to understand the magnitude of the plot that is being carried out here for the purpose of embarrassing, humiliating, trapping Jesus. What they want at this point is Jesus to go one of either two ways. Show compassion and say, no, no. That, that may have been the case, but no, we're, we're not going to stone her, setting her free, and that's the end of it. In which case, the Pharisees would have leaped on that and said, look, he has no regard for the law of God. He has just shredded the Mosaic law, and he claims to be God. How can that possibly be? And they would have dismissed Jesus in front of the crowd. The other option is, they assume, the only other chance for Jesus here is to uphold the law and say, I'm afraid you're right. She must be stoned, in which case it would have stirred up a frenzy in that crowd and probably brought the Roman authorities down on Jesus for what was caused as a consequence of that. For the moment, though, verse 6 says, Jesus said nothing. He bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Let's be really clear about this. We don't know what Jesus wrote. Every commentary on this passage says... We don't know what Jesus wrote, but here's five or six different ideas of what he might have written. Might have written some verses, might have written their list of sins of the accusers. Let, let's be content here to settle with the fact that God, for whatever reason, has chosen to not tell us what Jesus wrote, and so we don't know. And, and we're okay with that. We're wise, in fact, in saying we don't know what Jesus wrote. What I think we do know 
is that he takes this time to sort of, whether or not it's build suspense, it certainly sets a mood here in that they have just asked him this question to put him on the spot. And Jesus quietly kneels down and as far as they can tell is like dabbling in the ground and he's not answering their question. And so in the minds of the Pharisees, maybe they've got him. Maybe this is that moment. And in fact, verse 7 says, and as they continued to ask him. The idea is they persisted. The, the wonder of that quiet moment in which the whole crowd is waiting is that was, that was sort of one last chance for the Jewish leaders to sort of pause and reflect on what they had just done. In, in dragging this woman into the public square and humiliating her in, in, in front of this crowd and seeking to use her sin as a game to sort of trap Jesus. And instead, there is no thought at this point, as it says, they continued to ask him. Jesus is kneeling there, and the Pharisees are just badgering him at this point. Come on, what is it? What's it going to be? You know what the law is. You, you teach. What are we going to do at this point, right? You going to stone her or not? And they repeat the question. So imagine that scene. A woman who is utterly ashamed, thoroughly frightened, not knowing if she is going to be killed by a crowd here in a moment. Jewish leaders who are giddy with delight that they have, they have finally done it. They've got Jesus trapped. And a crowd that is just waiting and watching. So verse 7 says, As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, one line, Let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. <laughs> With the benefit of having read the Gospel of John and knowing the life of Christ, we, we sort of know on these kind of things how this is going to go. And we would think, you would think the Jewish religious leaders would have had some clue that trying to trap Jesus usually doesn't work. And so here they are in this premier moment when they feel like they've got him cornered, and Jesus not only turns the tables on them, but he actually just exposes them as utter frauds who have given no thought to their own sinfulness, their own, the evil in their own hearts, when they have dragged this woman there, and, and his statement did what they thought was impossible. Because the first thing it does is it upholds the law. He doesn't absolve her. Jesus didn't say the woman was not guilty. He still allowed for the punishment for adultery. If you're without sin, cast the first stone. Go ahead. And so he doesn't absolve her and he upholds the law. In fact, he almost spreads the honor of the law by, by very kindly applying the law to everyone who's standing there and says, Let, let's, while we're talking about obedience to the law, let's, let's apply this, right? Everyone here have you obeyed God's law perfectly? Are you without sin? And so he, he sort of broadens the application of it and says, only if you claim to be free of sin should you cast a stone. And thereby in the process, he shows mercy and spares her from execution and puts the matter back in the hands of the accusers. It is a remarkable moment. By the way, the, the history of this is, is consistent with what we've known for centuries. The history of that era reminds us that, that in, in terms of social view of moral standards, the application of laws on moral standards was much more lax, almost always on men than women. D.A. Carson writes, as in many societies around the world, so here, when it comes to sexual sins, the woman was much more likely to be in legal and social jeopardy than her paramour, her lover. 
Jesus, though, is turning this, and he is, he's jabbing right at the conscience of each of these religious leaders. And in fact, by doing so, he's warning that those who have come to make her judgment an issue now also are judged. And that, that condemnation of the law spreads to all. And their response then is verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone, standing with the woman standing before him. The same men who were not at all bothered or convicted by the idea of humiliating a woman for the sake of their own gain, for the sake of their own entrapment of Jesus Christ, who a moment ago were badgering Jesus with these questions because they thought they had him trapped. Now all of a sudden their mouths are shut, their heads are lowered, and they are forced to slink away from this crowd. I, I, I don't think it's um, a, a, non, a minor point that he points out that it's the older ones, beginning with the older ones, because you have to assume at least some wisdom and experience here that the older men knew at that point, they better get out of there before Jesus said anything else. He had bent down on the ground and he was quiet again and now was the, probably the time to walk away, especially before one of the young bucks came up with some question or some charge to Jesus and, and make this thing even worse. And the other thing about the older guys is they've got more life experience and a whole longer catalog of sin that they can look back on. And so when that statement comes from Jesus, whoever's without sin should go ahead and cast the stone, they're able to think about their own lives and their own hearts and their own sin and, and what they've done. And, so they begin this, this group of Jewish leaders to just walk away defeated. Jesus is left alone. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Has anyone condemned you? No one, sir. She is not, and this is important for us to remember, she is not absolved of her sin. It is not as if the adultery didn't happen. Jesus is not excusing her sin. He's not being light on sexual sin at this point. But what he is saying is there is no one left with unchecked motives who can sit there and say, oh, well, she's, she's worse. She's terrible. She deserves death. Ultimately, our Lord Jesus is the one who holds the power of condemnation for eternity over life and death. He is not minimizing her sin, but he is also not condemning her at this point, something that no one in the crowd could. We know he doesn't minimize it because Jesus in Matthew 5 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's no, there's no innocence here. Jesus is not going soft on sin, and in fact, his last comment to her is, Stop doing this. The, the grammar here is not just go and, and sin no more. It is stop this life of, of what you're doing. Stop in this life of sin that you're carrying on. Jesus acknowledged the woman's guilt, and he warned her to leave her life of sin. It should sound fairly familiar to John chapter 5 and the healing of the man at the pool of Bethsaida when Jesus goes and finds him again at the temple and says, listen, one more thing that I, I need to tell you is you better stop in your sinful ways or something worse may happen to you than, than what you've experienced for the last 38 years. That's because Jesus Christ knows and, 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 and accurately warns that sin has 
dire consequences. We may, we may sin and feel like we've gotten away with it because we weren't seen, but sin always has some ramifications to it. Sin has some destruction to it. Sin does something that at minimum interferes in our relationship with, with our Lord and our fellowship with him in the sense that we think we can sort of carry on in some way. Sin is always destroying. But I think what's key in this passage here in John 8 is that his warning to the adulteress was preceded by the assurance. We can't get those out of order. Assurance and then warning. Because if if what he had said to her was, listen, if you go and sin no more from here, then I will not condemn you, then he would be setting a pattern which for all of us would be entirely unattainable. If Jesus said, listen, you go and live a really good life and check back with me when you are sinless, then I will free you from condemnation. We know we would all be doomed at that point. Instead, he said, I don't condemn you. Now cease from your sinful ways. What Jesus is giving here is a a foretaste of the gospel. He is giving us a picture of the gospel. Jesus, the sinless one, The one who has the power to condemn sinners for all of eternity at this point chooses not to condemn this woman, that he is the perfect one, the sinless one, and by not condemning a woman caught in an act of adultery, a woman who is guilty under the law and for whom the punishment of God's law is death, by not condemning her as the law prescribes, Jesus is holding out forgiveness. He is holding out to her the opportunity to find forgiveness and new life. Jesus, on the basis of what he will do in just a matter of months, when he gives his own life on the cross, when he stretches out his own arms and is nailed to a cross, will bear the wrath of a holy God for her adultery. And he will bear the wrath of a holy God for my lust and yours, for my anger and yours, for my lying and yours, my cheating and yours. He will bear that wrath. And so Jesus can stand before this woman and say, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I am holding out to you new life. He's holding out to her something that is based on what he will do. How do sinners who break God's law with reckless abandon We've all been there, who have lived to please self, who have arrogantly ignored God, who have defiantly committed adultery or wallowed in lust, who have committed murder or who have seethed in anger toward other people, which Jesus also condemns. How could we possibly be loved by a holy, perfect creator who has established his law? Only by the cross of Jesus Christ. Only by the sacrifice of a perfect lamb of God who takes our sin and his punishment on himself only by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The terrible suffering that Jesus would endure in just months from that moment was the ground on which he could hold out to a guilty woman the offer of forgiveness and life, the offer of transformation and new hope. Let me uh, suggest applications in this. One for if you are not trusting in Christ and one if you are. If, if, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if this morning you have said, yeah, I, I, he was a good guy and he, th- this is a really nice thing that he did, but I'm not sure that I've 
I can embrace him as, as Savior, then, then I want to urge you this morning that this Savior is holding out to you the opportunity for forgiveness. That he gave his life as a ransom and he died to take God's penalty for sin that we rightfully deserved. And I, I would urge you to cry out to him, to call on Jesus and to trust in him and believe in him and find forgiveness. To stand before him one day not condemned. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, I, I think there's two, two applications for us in this. One is we have been saved if you're trusting in Jesus as Savior, we have been redeemed to newness of life, and we should love purity. This comment to her of, I do not condemn you, now go, and, and from now on, sin no more, is a call to now speaking to us, as, as he did to that woman, that woman, I have forgiven you, not so that you may carry on in sin, but so that you may walk differently, so that your life might be changed. It's what Peter writes about in 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Not only are we not condemned, we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, and not only will we, we have the joy of knowing that that record of sins is, is destroyed and the power of sin is destroyed at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we have been joined to the body of Christ, filled with his spirit and enabled to live differently, enabled to be people who respond to his call to go and live differently. Don't wallow in that anymore. Don't live like the world anymore. He is transforming us. Second application, I would, I would say that this passage ought to teach us is compassion. Compassion for unbelievers who sometimes we look at and we are amazed at the depths to which they may sink in their depravity and the things they may do. We shouldn't be amazed. We should realize that but for the grace of God, we could just as easily be in that place. And it should teach us a level of compassion that what they desperately need is the Savior. And it should also teach us companion in dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here is Jesus Christ holding out this sort of tender care versus the, the Pharisees. The religious leaders have taken a woman caught in sin and used her as an object, used her to humiliate, to embarrass, to destroy if need be. It didn't matter so they could get to their larger point, which was to get at Jesus. God forbid that we would ever take someone else's sin and revel in that in some way that somehow it would make us look better or feel better about ourselves. We ought to have compassion in how we minister to others as we come alongside and, and exhort and counsel and, and similarly be people who appreciate compassion when we've sinned and when somebody comes alongside to exhort and counsel and, and encourage us, be receptive to that and realize they are just doing the kindness of Christ in our lives when they come and they help us to see our sin. May we be like Christ, not like those Pharisees, and being able to be in that place of, of holding out the hope of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for granting to us in this account 
from his life, just a, a, a glimpse into what it means to, to come to the broken and, and to offer a, a forgiveness and a hope and a healing that, that no one else could at a, a point where the world was ready to destroy Christ was ready to redeem. Lord, teach us to be those kinds of people who would hold out the the wonder of the gospel. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, would today be the day that you would bring them to a place of seeing this glorious Savior who came for sinners, who came to rescue people in a fallen world by giving himself and taking the penalty that we deserve. Father, thank you for the glorious work of salvation as we celebrate it here in a moment in the Lord's table. Thank you for reminding us that sin does not come without cost, that it was the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, the suffering in our place for our wrath, that he experienced on the cross that we remember as we gather together with the bread and the cup. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying that price. Thank you for laying down your life for sinners. Thank you for mercy when we deserve judgment, for grace that overcomes our sin. We pray these things in your great name. Amen.